We now continue chapter 2 in 10 parts in the King, the prophesied reconciliation of God's two witnesses. I am your author, Peter G. Rambo, Sr. And uh, chapter 2 is titled, The Ten Tribes and the Two Tribes, and it begins, Seeing and Not Seeing. The fond memories I recall from my upbringing in a solid Christian family includes the stirring messages and song that imparted timeless truths of Scripture into my heart and mind and soul as I sang them. They infused my being to a depth and a breadth that sermons and Sunday school lessons could not approach. I may not have understood the full meaning of the songs, but the timeless truths contained within them have made them popular for centuries. This is as true of Christmas carols as of Charles Wesley's immortal hymns. Although I no longer celebrate the Christmas holiday, I firmly remain attached to the Messiah whom I met at church. I first knew him as Jesus Christ, and today I prefer to call him by his Hebrew name and title, Yeshua HaMashiach, or Yeshua the Messiah. I know Yeshua's Hebrew name thanks to a phenomenon sweeping the church in this generation. I call it the Torah awakening, the growing awareness among Christians worldwide that the law, God's law, his Torah, teaching and commandments as written by Moses in the first five books of the Bible still applies today. This follows from the testimony of our Messiah himself when he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. The Torah awakening has created the need to rethink what we know of Scripture, of the role or roles of Messiah, and of the definition of Israel. We have understood that Israel received the Torah, but as Christians, Israel was little more than a historical entity that provided the backdrop for our modern faith. Except when we sang about it. About a thousand years ago, God inspired someone in Europe to write a song of praise in Latin, which we know today as the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The words spring straight from Scripture, speaking to a national affiliation that Christians rarely acknowledge with the seriousness it requires. Hear the words of this amazing hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. 
O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home, where all thy saints with thee shall dwell. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. What does this song mean? Is it meant for Jews? After all, the prevailing opinion for the last 2,700 years has been that Jews are all there is to the nation of Israel. Why then do Jews not acknowledge Messiah Yeshua as their king? To answer that, the answer to that is complicated, and although the subject of this book touches on it, a full investigation of the question is beyond its scope. Instead, let's investigate the application of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel to a different group of people, to Christians, a people who acknowledge the King of Israel, but who for the most part have not yet understood their own identity as Israelites. The subtitle, Partaking of the Commonwealth. This is one of those awkward situations we must think through if we are to understand the Torah awakening. We tend to think of the Torah as only a Jewish thing, but is it? In practice, yes, only the Jews have attempted to remain faithful to the law of God. Therefore, they are rightly considered Israelites and Hebrews, not only because of physical descent from, Abra uh, from Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also because of their adherence to the Torah of Israel's God. I want to give a quick footnote here that says it can be argued that Christians already teach, I'm sorry, already keep much of the Torah. As Yeshua said, the weightier provisions of the law are justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23. You can also see that in Micah 6, 8 and Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13. He also identified the two greatest commandments as loving God and loving others in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. But it's interesting to note that they come directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. What most Christians do not keep is the Sabbath or the Shabbat on the seventh day. They do not celebrate the feasts of the Lord, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and they do not eat a biblically clean diet per Leviticus 11 or wear tzitzits, tassels, on, the, on their garments to remind them of God's commandments, Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. These are the major provisions of the Torah which Jews and Messianic Hebrew followers of Yeshua honor, but which most Christians do not. So continuing with our text. What then are we to make of Christians who keep Torah? For the most part, they call themselves something other than Christians, not because they've left Messiah Yeshua, the Christ in Christian, but because they have left the traditional church. Yet, because they cling to Yeshua, the one who brought them into relationship with Almighty God and who taught them to obey God's Torah, they cannot become Jews, nor do they desire to do so. There is an answer staring us all right in the face. It appears not only in the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, but also throughout the apostolic writings, sometimes called the Brit Harashah, or the New Testament. The Apostle Paul explains this answer throughout his letters, but perhaps most clearly in his reference to the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth is from the Greek politeia, 
uh, Strong's Greek uh, or Strong's number G4177, referring to a political entity like a state or nation. The term is only used twice, once in Acts 22:28, when Paul refers to his own Roman citizenship, and a second time in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when he refers to the citizenship of those who have attached themselves to Yeshua. The phrase in Ephesians is of particular interest to us. Here it is in context. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the hands by or made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of or covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 11, or chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and that's read from the New King James. This passage illustrates the reconciliation of non-Jews with Jews in an entity we could call Greater Israel. The vehicle which makes that possible is the work of Messiah, who somehow makes the non-Jews acceptable to God and able to join with Jews in his covenants. Much of the uh, reasoning presented here is based on passages from the apostolic writings. Jews, of course, do not acknowledge these documents as scripture. Although there is an encouraging development among Jewish scholars to acknowledge the historical and cultural value of the New Testament. After all, most of the New Testament writers were Jewish, and all were knowledgeable of Torah and used it as their inspiration. One, Paul, was a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the most respected authorities on the Torah in first century Judea. See Acts chapter 5, 34 and 22, 3. It seems, therefore, that any disagreement between Christians and Jews about the apostolic writings is not rooted in the godly principles stated throughout the Tanakh, but rather in their expectations of how Messiah is to fulfill those principles. So I want to give you two lengthy footnotes that go with this. Um, the one is a reference to Solomon Schechter and Wilhelm Bakker that... Uh, wrote in the Jewish Encyclopedia in 1906 about Gamliel, okay, and uh, gives the page numbers and such. The second is scholarly appreciation for the apostolic writings in some Jewish academic circles motivated the most recent publication of the annotated Jewish New Testament. In explaining their reasonings for their undertaking, the editors state, we believe that it is important for both Jews and non-Jews to understand how close, in many aspects, significant parts of the New Testament are to the Jewish practices and beliefs reflected in the works of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Philo and Josephus, the Pseudepigrapha, and Deuterocanonical literature, the Targumim, which are Aramaic translations of the Bible, and slightly later rabbinic literature, and that the New Testament has, in many passages, Jewish origins. Jesus was a Jew, as was Paul. Likely the authors known as Matthew and John were Jews, as well as authors of the epistles of James and the book of Revelation. When they were writing, the parting of the ways had not yet occurred. Other authors, such as the individuals who composed the uh, Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, 
while probably not Jewish themselves, were profoundly influenced by first and second century Jewish thought and by the Jewish translations of the Tanakh into Greek, the Septuagint. Thus understanding the diverse Jewish populations of the early Roman Empire, their habits, their conventions, their religious practices, is as crucial to understanding the New Testament writings as is general familiarity with the Roman world. In turn, familiarity with the New Testament helps Jews to recover some of their own history. And that quote comes from Amy Jill Levine and Mark Zvi Brettler, editors for the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Continuing our text. However, it includes far more than that. A restored relationship with the living God through the covenant he established with Abraham the Bible explains how all of humanity rejected this relationship with the Creator, first in the Garden of Eden, then in the wicked global civilization that God judged to destruction in the Great Flood, and afterward in the disastrous demonstrations of human pride at the Tower of Babel. Rather than destroy humanity completely, God implemented a plan of redemption through Abraham, a man whom God called for that specific purpose, Genesis 12, 1-3. That Abraham obeyed God's Torah is evident from the Creator him, when the Creator himself said he renewed the covenant with uh, Abraham's son, Isaac. In Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5, God says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, or Torot. Abraham became the first to hear and obey God's Torah long before it was given formally at Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel that he fathered. By taking God at his word and following through with actions, Abraham demonstrated the basis of covenant relationship for all generations that is why Moses and the apostles could point to Abraham as the model for faith leading to salvation. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, 6 and Romans 4, 3 and 20 through, uh, 4, 20 to 22 and Galatians 3, 6 and James 2, 23. As God promised, Abraham did become the father of a multitude of nations, Genesis 17, 4. However, the redeeming seed of the covenant passed directly through his son Isaac and grandson Jacob to the nation of Israel. Um, the redeeming seed of the covenant passed directly through his son Isaac and grandson Jacob to the nation of Israel. Uh, multiple references there in Genesis chapter 17, 25, 27, and 32. Even though the nation disobeyed God, including his severe judgment or incurring his severe judgment, his faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed ensured he would preserve them forever. This is evident in passages such as these from Isaiah 14, 1. Then the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Or Isaiah 65, 1, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. 
These passages indicate that Christian tradition is in error in the supposition that God created two entities by which he deals with humanity, namely Israel and the church. Church is a rendition of the Greek word ekklesia, the congregation or assembly of God. Ekklesia corresponds to the Hebrew kahal, and the respective um, Strong's numbers are G1577 and H6950 a term used throughout the Tanakh to refer to the congregation, kahal, or assembly of all Israel. And it's interesting to note that I think ecclesia also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses ecclesia in many places to refer to the, the congregation or the assembly of Israel. The evidence of Scripture indicates that God created only one covenant entity, the family, congregation, body, nation, and kingdom called Israel. His purpose since the days of Abraham has been to establish a way for all nations to be brought into fellowship with himself through the nation of Israel. From the beginning, Israel was destined to become a kingdom of priests, see Exodus 19.6. That would serve as a vehicle of salvation for all the nations. What we have not recognized until now is that to complete his work, the family had to be divided. Various church doctrines over the ages have emphasized the global salvation mission of Israel, but have failed to explain adequately how the church could fulfill that role or how the Jewish people fit into this picture. This has less uh, this had let, has led to the error of replacement theology, which asserts that the church is now spiritual Israel and that Jews are no longer relevant in God's plan, except in terms of the wrath yet to be poured out on them and the rest of the unbelieving world during the Great Tribulation. Paul's use of the term commonwealth of Israel is not replacement theology. It is an understanding that Jews and Christians each play a part in God's plan and the two must join together to display the fullness of his counsels. Christians do not replace the Jewish people, but instead join with Jews in the fulfillment of God's plan for all humanity. This is based on the writings of Paul, that those who believe in Yeshua as Messiah are the seed of Abraham. He presents this train of logic in Romans 9, 6-8, and Galatians 3, 15-29, culminating in this assertion. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, or seed, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. Paul does not state here that, that non-Jewish believers in Messiah, Yeshua, have replaced Jews as the seed of Abraham. Instead, he affirms that non-Jews now have a place alongside Jews in the promises of God. In Romans 11, he draws the symbol of an olive tree from Jeremiah 11, 15, and 16 as a representation of Israel to illustrate this point. He plainly states that those from the nation, from the nations, or Gentiles, have been grafted into the tree by virtue of their belief in Israel's Messiah and therefore have full part with Jews, the natural branches of the tree. In other words, to paraphrase Paul's statement in Romans 9, 6, all Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. God is not finished with Israel. In fact, Israel is much bigger than both Jews and Christians commonly suppose. And I want to back up and read that one line again, because you really need to burn this into the front of your mind. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. And we'll be coming back to that over and over.
introducing the two witnesses. <clears throat> but let us back up for a moment. Why is it so important to be part of Israel? We begin to understand this from the testimony of Moses and the prophets. Let me read a couple passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5-8 through eight says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Another passage from Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20. It says, he declared his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. And from Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 and 11. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. If we have a question about Israeli exceptionalism, we have to take that up with Yehovah himself, or Yahweh himself. It is his idea. Not only is Israel the one nation of all the nations on earth that God has chosen as his own special possession, but according to Jeremiah's prophecy, it is the one that will survive when the Almighty pours out his, ju uh, his just wrath on a rebellious world. Discerning people would be wise to find some way to become part of the nation of Israel before that happens. But how? Isn't Israel Jewish? And to become an Israelite or Israeli, doesn't a person have to convert to Judaism? Let us repeat this fundamental truth. All Jews are Israelites but not all Israelites are Jews. There is a large part of the nation of Israel that is not now, never has been, and never will be Jewish. At its foundation, the nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes. Only one of those 12 tribes, namely the tribe of Judah, Yehuda, uh, Strong's H3063, could be considered Jewish. In fact, Judah is the origin of the name Jew. Jew, duh, right? Duh. Little commentary. That's not in the book. Okay. When God divided, uh, divided Israel into two political entities, 10 of those non-Jewish tribes followed Jeroboam, leader of the tribe of Ephraim, in establishing the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel. See 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Only one tribe, Benjamin, remained loyal to Rehoboam, grandson of King David, and stayed in political union with Judah. 
Judah and Benjamin, plus most of the priestly tribe of Levi, along with a remnant of loyal Hebrews from the other tribes, comprised the southern kingdom, which took the name of Judah. Today, the Jewish people are, for the most part, descendants of this southern kingdom. Interestingly, the first mention of Jews in Scripture is in 2 Kings in the context of a war between Israel and Judah. Scripture says in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Ramalia, or son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to, to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, king of Judah, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drove the Jews from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. Most translations do not use Jews in this passage, opting instead for men of Judah. See, like the ESV or the New King James. People of Judah in the NIV or Judeans in the CJB or the NASB or the New Revised. Regardless which terms are used, this passage makes a distinction between the Yehudim, the Jews, and the other Israelites who allied with the Syrians or Arameans in some translations and attacked them. In fact, the war reported in 2 Kings 16 and in the more detailed account of 2 Chronicles 28, 1-15 forms the backdrop for a series of messianic prophecies given through Isaiah. These prophecies commence in Isaiah 7, immediately after the prophet records his dramatic vision of the Lord in the temple and commission to carry Yahweh's message to all the people of Israel. They include this familiar promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew 1.23 refers to this prophecy of Messiah's birth. That much we understood from our upbringing in church. What we never learned was that Isaiah gave this prophecy in the context of a war between the two divided kingdoms of Israel. Throughout the prophecy, Isaiah also makes a point of referring to these two Israelite entities by the names of their chief tribes, Ephraim and Judah. These are the two houses of Israel, the two divisions of God's kingdom, which comprise the two witnesses of the Almighty and His covenant. Cut out of the kingdom. As I will explain, the message of Yahweh's kingdom is incomplete without the testimony of both witnesses. Where this testimony became garbled over the centuries is partly due to the fact that Isaiah's prophecy came true Within a generation, the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. Thereafter, reference to the Jews in Scripture became frequent as they alone remained to carry on the testimony of Israel. Yet they are not alone. The other house is still out there and will return as the Lord himself clearly promises. In fact, Isaiah makes that promise soon after his prophecy of Ephraim's destruction. Isaiah 11, 10 through or 10 uh, through thir- uh, and 13 through 16. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. 
And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. This messianic prophecy begins with references to the root of Jesse, the one on whom the seven spirits of God rest, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, and also Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. How interesting that it is given in the context of the Lord restoring his chosen people, Ephraim and Judah. The prophecy is specific. There are two parts of Israel which must be restored. Both have been scattered to the four corners of the earth. But whereas one, Judah, has been dispersed and the other, Ephraim, has been banished. The difference is this. Although the Jewish people have been driven from the promised land into every part of the world, they have retained their Israelite identity. In contrast, Ephraim, non-Jewish Israel, was not only exiled from the land, but cut out of the kingdom altogether. See Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, and Hosea 1, verses 6 and 7. Yet God promises to bring them back as a distinct entity, rejoin them with Judah, and restore his covenant nation in the messianic kingdom of the son of David. It will be a miracle beyond belief, not only because the national entity called Ephraim has not existed for over 2,700 years, but also because there's a tremendous opposition to Ephraim's return. Oddly enough, the opposition comes not primarily from without, but from within the ranks of God's own people. This is the point of Isaiah's cryptic words about the animosity between the two houses. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. Isaiah eleven thirteen. The jealousy of Ephraim is in the fact that Judah is the designated leader of the nation, even though Ephraim carries the birthright and the name of the family, Israel. That division of honor and responsibility originating from Jacob, patriarch of the nation, when he blessed his sons and grandsons just before he died, uh, Genesis 48 and 49, Ephraim and the tribes with them, resented the fact that their wealth and power would always fall under the dominion of Judah's headship. In time, that resentment exploded into rebellion against the dynasty of David, the king Yahweh chose from the tribe of Judah to rule over the entire nation. To this day, the resentment manifests in the form of attempts by various segments of the church to usurp Judah's place in the nation and claim to be the new or spiritual Israel. If, as I believe, Ephraim today exists largely within Christianity, then this tendency has deep and ancient roots. But what is the vexation of Judah toward Ephraim? Simply put, it is the tendency to exclude Ephraim from participation in the nation of Israel. Perhaps the clearest statement on this subject comes from Ezekiel, a prophet who spoke both to the house of Israel, then in exile for over 120 years, and to the house of Judah, in the process of being exiled to Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, 
This land has been given to us as a possession. At the time Ezekiel received this prophecy, Jerusalem was still the capital of Judah. The inhabitants of Jerusalem were Jews of the house of Judah. Their words, as the prophet states, were directed against their exiled kin of the house of Israel, charging that they no longer had a place within the nation. That is the vexation of Judah toward Ephraim. From that day to this, the only way a person can be admitted to the nation of Israel is on Jewish terms, which means conversion to Judaism. In the first century, the applicable term was circumcision, which involved every part of the rabbinic conversion process, including physical circumcision. It had mattered little that Ephraimites would retain a memory of Yahweh in their wanderings. That, too, is part of Ezekiel's prophecy. Uh, Ezekiel 11, verses 16 through 21 says, Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, when they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. Astute readers will recognize here the components of the new covenant, the radical heart change that God himself brings about in his people. It's a transformation addressed throughout the scriptures from Moses to Jeremiah to Paul. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and or, through 34, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the testimony of Israel, Ephraim, to wander the earth from a, with a cultural memory of the holy God who redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and who will redeem them again from the exile imposed for their rebellion. As they mixed with the peoples of the earth, Ephraimites leavened the nations with the leaven of the kingdom of heaven, ready to respond when the good news of salvation and redemption through Yeshua came to them. Although they did not know their Israelite identity, they accepted the testimony that Yeshua is God's provision to bring them into covenantal relationship with him. Moreover, they knew that anyone could avail themselves of that offer of redemption. This good news is something that Judah has, for the most part, not recognized. Sadly, it's something Judah has hindered for nearly 2,000 years. Not the salvation part. That, according to prevailing Jewish opinion, is fine for Christians and for Gentiles in general, but not for Jews who have their own relationship with the Almighty. What is a problem is when these non-Jews claim to be part of the nation of Israel. Such claims, it appears, threaten Jewish identity as Israelites, perhaps even generating fear that a flood of Gentiles coming into the nation will overwhelm the Jews and make them an irrelevant minority. The fear is not unfounded, as 2,000 years of Christian-Jewish relations have demonstrated. It seems both sides have incentive to remain apart. 
If this gospel of the kingdom really does mean a reunification of the two houses of Israel into a renewed national entity of 12 tribes under the son of David, then it means the religious order of both sides must undergo radical restructuring. Given the tremendous wealth and political power that have accumulated to the Christians and to the Christian and Jewish world through their existence as related and yet distinct religions, it is no surprise that the existing order is something both sides prefer to maintain. Hence the dilemma of Christian support to Israel. If we carry this to the logical conclusion and the two are to become one, then either Christians must become Jews or Jews must become Christians unless there is another alternative, an alternative which adjusts our understanding of Israel to encompass far more than we have heretofore understood. This is an Israel of two reunited houses, living as Hebrews under the Torah of the living God as administered by their king, Messiah, son of David. It is an Israel that contains much of what uh, Judaism and Christianity hold as true, because it is true. It is an Israel that completes the vision of both Judaism and Christianity, unraveling those knotty dilemmas. Each have their, have been unable to decipher completely or satisfactorily within their own paradigms. This is the Israel in which the 10 tribes and the two tribes cease their warfare and submit to their king. That's the end of chapter two, and then there's a page here with um, some thoughts on Israel's two houses, some explanatory notes, so it helps us going forward as we think about and understand the two houses of Israel. The two chief tribes in the nation of Israel are Judah and Joseph. As 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 explains, Judah received the blessing from Jacob to be the ruler of the entire family, while Joseph received the firstborn blessing and the family name, Israel. The house of Joseph is also often called Ephraim, after Joseph's son, who became father of the chief tribe of the house of Joseph. And so what we have in the house of Judah is Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin, and a significant portion of Levi. The priestly tribe of Levi received no territorial allotment, but settled in cities given to them by each of the tribes. Most Levites attached themselves to the house of Judah when the kingdom was divided. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 1, Joshua 21, verses 1 through 42, and 2 Chronicles 11, verses 1 through 17. The house of Joseph, or Ephraim, includes the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, Reuben, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Simeon, and parts of Levi. Um, and a footnote for Simeon, even though Simeon's territorial allotment was entirely within the territory of Judah, at the time of the kingdom's division, many Simeonites allied with the house of Ephraim. Uh, you can see that in 2 Chronicles 15, 8 through 10, and 34, 1 through 7, as well as 1 Chronicles 4, 24 through 43, and Joshua 19, 1 through 9 regarding the initial allotment. And this ends the portion for chapter 2. So we'll stop this here and pick up chapter 3 in the next episode. Shalom.